Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Having spent many years in Hollywood, I can tell you that if someone pitched the story of a guy who was a former baby clothes salesman, who then started a company that sublet co-working office space to millennials dreaming of the corporate brass ring, and that that company would become the most well-financed startup ever, and that the story of its eventual rise and fall would give birth to an Apple TV series, a Hulu documentary, an HBO movie, several books, two podcast series, that pitch would be rejected out of hand. And yet this is essentially the story of Adam Newman and WeWork. But it's also a story of Silicon Valley, of Wall Street, of international investors, of obsession with millennials, of portfolio theory, all taken too far. And it all comes together in what, dare I say, is the perfect corporate storm. While there are some bad and greedy actors in this story, I would argue that it's one with no heroes and no villains, because it exists, like many of our great corporate dramas, inside the protective bubble of a unique moment in time and place telling this story as more than just the story of Adam Newman and a failed business model, but telling it in the context of all of the aforementioned moving parts is my guest, Wall Street Journal reporter Maureen Farrell. Maureen Farrell covers IPOs for the Wall Street Journal, where she's worked since 2013. She previously worked at CNN, Forbes, DebtWire, and Merge Market, and together with her Wall Street Journal colleague, Elliot Brown, she's the co-author of The Cult of We, WeWork, Adam Newman, and the great startup delusion. Maureen Farrell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things that, that I come away with even more strongly after reading The Cult of We is the sense of all of the forces that came together at a particular moment that really created WeWork and created the delusion that surrounded it. You think about it that, you know, arguably WeWork wouldn't have existed or the pitch wouldn't have existed without Airbnb and Uber, without even the, you know, Amazon and the, and, and the ability to have losses for so long and have that kind of runway and have it pay off. And, and, and the obsession with millennials and the sharing economy, just so many forces came together at that moment in time. Talk about that. Sure. I, I'm, I'm really uh, glad to hear that this, that was your takeaway because that was something that struck us so much. I mean, it is this moment in time, all the things you just referenced, plus this uh, huge amount of money that was sort of allocated for the private markets and allocated towards tech companies, sort of trying to find the next big thing, the next Amazon, the next Facebook, and a real willingness among investors to take huge risks in order to potentially land a company and um, that could be this next Facebook, come in and pay a certain price and make, you know, a, a thousand times what they invest in, invested in. And with that, with this Facebook or Amazon, there was this focus on founders and essentially Adam Newman, the CEO of WeWork and the concept of WeWork and how how he told the concept to the world became sort of the vehicle on which so many people kind of put their hopes and dreams and their money on it and, and ignored so many red flags along the way. In many ways, as silly as the idea was that this company that essentially was in the business of subleasing office space, not a new concept, nothing really disruptive about it, that, that he was able to sell that as a tech company 
really wouldn't have happened without the idea of essentially Uber, which is glorified taxi company with an app being sold as a tech company, or Airbnb, or all these things that came before. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he really, Adam Newman was a masterful fundraiser, and he was also masterful at sort of watching uh, where the wind was blowing and where, where the money was going and um, figuring out you know, both that this, how he could sort of maneuver this concept that he had and um, make it the thing that everyone, everyone wanted at that moment and wanted to invest in. So, I mean, at the beginning, it it sort of morphs in terms of how we hear him tell the story over time. We heard that he told the story, like in 2012, he was calling WeWork uh, a physical Facebook. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) Say Facebook is big, but it, we're we're Facebook, but in person. And then he sort of shifted to saying it was you know the sharing economy. When you as you mentioned Uber and Airbnb, it wasn't really. I mean, it's shared office space, but it was a very different model than either of those companies. Eventually, he starts talking about artificial intelligence. Like the, it was big on that. <laughs> kind of gets more and more ridiculous. But, yeah, there yeah. was also this interesting feedback loop that. The people, by and large, this is not absolute, but but the people that were renting the office space were people that were kind of junior versions of Adam, that they mostly were out there as entrepreneurs going for that brass ring. And there was something about this whole thing that fed upon itself. Completely. And I mean, that. I guess that was one of the, like, really kind of magical serendipitous parts of WeWork, mm-hmm. especially at the be- at the beginning, it, it was so many of these entrepreneurs and, and they would be there. It would be like one man, one woman shops. Um, it could be a lawyer. It could be a designer. Some of these were companies that were built, trying to build a company so you could scale your office space. You maybe need a room or two um, now, but you'll need 10 rooms later. It was a nice place to do it. But when you hear of it in the early days, it was a lot of young people. It, it was a beautiful the aesthetic of WeWork was really uh, different from others. And it sort of led the way, this big uh, glass walls. So a lot of light came in. Um, they're beautiful spaces. And you do hear that people made connections with other people in a way they couldn't really find if you were an entrepreneur. Uh, there were some things like this happening, but not on a broad scale. So that was a, um, it did kind of like market itself for up to a point, especially in the early days. It was, you know, when it, granted, even then, questionable profits um, or business model, but it just seemed like it got worse and worse. And that some of that feeding on itself um, did not translate. I mean, they were spending a ton of marketing too. There was also this sense at the time that this would pay off later. I mean, and I suppose Amazon is, is, is the penultimate example of a company that could sustain losses. And, you know, and Bezos talks about this early on in his letter to shareholders, his famous letter to shareholders, that we're going to lose money, we're going to lose money, we're going to lose money, but it's all going to pay off in the long run. And, and people bought into that. And if it worked once with, with Amazon or it worked with Facebook, people were willing to believe it could work with Adam Newman. Completely. Um, the ironic thing. So what you say is true. It was, you know, Amazon lost money, Facebook lost money. But when you compare even accounting for inflation, and everything else, the losses of Amazon and even the losses of Facebook, they were so small in relative terms to um, 
to WeWork. I mean, WeWork was growing. It was doubling essentially its revenue every single year, and it was doubling its profits. It was like they were essentially growing in tandem. So Adam was using that. Adam Newman, the CEO, was using that um, line. You know, kept on saying, "Oh, profits." They're not here yet, but they will come. But just the sheer magnitude of the profits, and it didn't have the same business model. I mean, Amazon um, and Facebook, even you, there's an upfront investment, and at some point, you know, software, the, the network effect really happens. You invest a certain amount, and at some point, billions of people can use your service. The thing with office space is every single office space they open, there's just a certain amount of investment you have to make up front that never goes away as you expand. And that's what people were, the sort of suspension of disbelief by some of the most brilliant minds, like top investors in the world is, I think, what made the story so fascinating to us and kept on shocking us as we reported it. Because in part, Newman never found all, I'm not even sure that he tried. I mean, so much of it came out of his own megalomania, but he never found his AWS. He never really figured out how to turn his costs into a profit center. No, not at all. He, and he essentially was going after so many different things. Um, He, yeah, he never found the core business, figured out how to make that work much less exactly as you say, the AWS. I mean, they were going on into schools. They were going into apartment buildings. I mean, the, this whole idea of we live that um, young people would all want to share um, sort of communal space, which is actually, a, it's a cool idea. It's it just, it's unclear whether the economics of that could ever make sense. The thing is what it seemed like he did was uh, each step of the way, you know, the profits weren't happening in the main business, but it was sort of like, look here, we've got this grand, shiny new initiative that we're launching. It sort of kept kept everyone looking in different places and almost served to like obscure some of the fundamentals that weren't working in terms of the business model. Which really raises, I mean, and this is another thing that, that you and Elliot talk about in the book, this idea that there were so many smart people that put money into this, that continued investing. And the question always gets asked, well, how could people that are so smart be fooled so often? And I would argue, and, and I'd be very curious you know, how you see this, that they weren't fooled, that, that they really understood what was going on, but they just wanted to believe the delusion, that, that they, they saw the economics for what it was, but they believed that somehow – if, if Newman threw enough stuff against the wall, he could figure out a way to make it work. Uh, I think you're exa- you're 100% spot on there. Um, and because it, it's interesting, I mean, what we saw time and time again to that point was there would be a top person at an investment firm that would meet with Adam and he would convince them, you know, this was, he was going to make this work. It was going to be bigger than anyone had ever imagined. He could spin this tale and he's masterful at it. But then the people underneath this main person, whether it was the CEO at SoftBank, Masayoshi Son, or you know someone senior at like Fidelity Management, uh, their deputies would often, we knew time and time again, would scrutinize the numbers and say, hey, here are red flags. This is why it doesn't make sense. This doesn't really fit what you're saying um, is going to happen. And time and time again, uh, you know, Adam and this, individual person would convince this other person to, you know, don't worry about it. 
uh, those risks don't matter. I'm going to figure it out exactly like you said. And they just trusted him and were willing to still take a bet on him despite any red flags. And that happened as it got bigger. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that really is the key is that it was a bet on him. It wasn't a bet on the business model. It wasn't a bet on the company. It was just a bet on him. Yeah. That he could like, he was such a visionary that he could ultimately figure this whole thing out. That, yeah, completely seemed like what it was. And I guess getting back to what you said at the beginning in terms of this era we were in and this maybe only happening now, it is this era of um, this founder. I mean, we've seen in Silicon Valley more and more and more, and it, it hasn't really stopped even post WeWorks um, unraveling, is that uh, there's this founder control. Founders get have been able to... Um, Investors want to show that they're founder friendly or else their founders won't take their money. The control and the power is very much in the hands of these uh, tech founders and, you know, or people who want to be tech founders and can convince people that are tech company founders. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was thinking about that in, in the, and wondering how it got that way. And you almost have to think about Steve Jobs and Apple in the early days to really understand that, because that really set the paradigm in so many respects. It did. Um, he he completely did. And I mean, when you talk to investors or even you know researchers, like they look and say that uh, all if you look at almost every huge company right now, it was backed and controlled by a. A single founder. It's not like the, like a manager comes in. I mean, you look at Facebook, you look at Amazon, Apple, um, all these huge co- the companies that dominate our whole economy. Google, even um, up until a point. So that I, there is this idea that you're never going to get this giant company without this founder. The the ironic thing was it, Steve Jobs was uh, pushed out of Apple. You know, he was kicked out. He came back. Um, Jeff Bezos doesn't have any excess voting control in the way that founders now do. It's like he's just been able to keep control of the company because he's executed so well. So these can, these sort of new provisions that founders have managed to secure for themselves, um, you know, for as much as people cite Jobs and Bezos, uh, they don't. They never had those things, those protections. What was interesting about Jobs is that, as you say, he was kicked out. The company floundered. Then he comes back and saves the company, and that sort of said, that, "Well, you don't mess with founders because if they go away, the company will flounder." Yeah, exactly. Though there's clearly another side to that potentially. I mean, maybe getting kicked out. It you know it was a wake up call, and you you hear those stories. He had to do some soul searching. Came back a different person. Um, maybe maybe he would not have had the same trajectory if he just stayed in power that whole time. It's interesting that that in some ways, I mean, not to get too far afield from WeWork, I want to come back to that, but but Google is kind of the, the maybe the exception because they did bring in adult supervision at some point. Exactly, they did. But their founders, I mean, they were one of the, I guess they were really one of the first to put in this founder control. And they're, it's, you know, if you wanted to buy into Google's IPO, you had to know that the founders would have indefinite control of this company. So they did bring in the adult supervision, yet the founders made, you know, let everyone know that they could would do whatever they wanted with this company. This goes back to this idea with WeWork that it was really about Adam Newman and that it was a bet on him. 
and and at a certain point they were burning through money huge amounts as you, as you've talked about and it was really the money that masayoshi san put in that that kept him going at a certain point yes i mean they it's funny before they met softbank uh before adam newman met masayoshi son and uh, got the first initial investment in 2017 of $4.4 billion, Adam Newman had basically almost tapped out the whole globe in terms of he'd raised a lot of capital. He was sort of, he'd tapped mutual funds. He'd tapped the wealth management arms of banks, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs. And then he eventually went to China and raised more money from Chinese investors so basically, WeWork was looking like it was going to have to go to the public markets to raise money for expansion. And, you know, you could say it was a lucky break or the beginning of the end, maybe, uh, for WeWork and for Adam's control over the company was meeting Masa. And Masa had just raised this $100 billion fund and poured so much money into WeWork. And it just kind of set it on this new path of expansion. I mean, one of the stories we heard that shocked us was at some point, uh, Masa essentially told Adam, you know, that he had to be crazier. He told him in a, in a meeting with other people around, you know, who wins in a fight, the smart guy or the crazy guy? The crazy guy always wins. You need to be crazier. And everyone around Adam Newman said, oh, no, he's, like, he's pretty crazy. Um, and he really took that to heart. And the whole company just started. It was sort of when you see this inflection point of them going in aggressively expanding and you know people in the real estate department would see if you if you lived in a city maybe this is a place that would not a we work would not make sense in it wasn't necessarily like a dense urban area but they had to expand they had to expand so quickly that they were going into real estate that was kind of not necessarily right for them they were spending wildly but, you know we heard stories of them Someone, one of the designers thought like the color orange was ridiculous. They had spent so much money on couches. They just got rid of them. Um, waste was basically everywhere. Once they had a certain amount of money and there was this, they were sort of plowing ahead at a hundred miles an hour dangerously. It's interesting to speculate that if, if SoftBank, if Massa hadn't put that four bill, four and a half billion into the company at that point, they would have had an IPO at that point, and the company might have survived as a result of that. It is so interesting, and I've definitely heard people um, around the company who were there at the time and after say that that like the public markets could have maybe put constraints on Adam Newman, and he's so competitive. They, a lot of people were saying, you know, he's such a competitive guy. He'll go out to the public market. He'll realize what he's the way he's running the business doesn't work, and it'll force him to figure it out. And yeah, of course that never happened. I mean, we one of the examples I think we saw with that was Snapchat. I mean, mm -hmm. it went public. It was such a such a hyped company, and it was a pretty disastrous uh, beginning to its time in the public market. And you know, the CEOs really turned the company around, and it's you know a legitimate competitor i think to facebook in a way it wasn't and i mean had you gone into the stock at the beginning i mean you it was down so dramatically i, I can't remember like 80 percent now its stock has done incredibly Fantastic. well and it, yeah so if you just stuck around as a shareholder you would have um it was a, a great bet and um yeah they they figured it out they pivoted many times saw what what worked what didn't 
Um, so, yeah, it is interesting to think about could we work and done the same thing. To what extent, to, to that point, to what extent do you think that, that Newman was focused on not just growing but building the company as opposed to just the, the sort of high life that he was living as a result of what he was doing? He was so caught up in the hype. I mean, it seems like as the company was, you know, getting, uh, like, the spending was getting more reckless inside the company, um, it seems like Adams personally was getting a lot more reckless in terms of, and spending less time. It really started to seem running the company, especially going into the IPO. And yeah, he had taken every, almost every round where they were raising money and and something that's kind of rare for a lot of private uh, startups, he was selling shares. So he was making like personally making a lot of money in a way that, you know, other shareholders did not have the option to sell shares. Uh, He was selling a lot. He at some point started, uh, got huge loans against his stock from JP Morgan and two other banks. I mean, he was sort of a billionaire. He had taken out more than a billion dollars between uh, loans and um, stock sales around the time of the IPO. And I mean, you start to see it in his behavior. I mean, it just gets crazier and crazier. I mean, just for example, I mean, things we've heard are that, uh, you know, executives, he was, he was traveling all the time and he'd take us ask a senior executive to come to a meeting in San Francisco and the senior executive would fly across the country, drop everything to get there. And Adam might be in New York at the time Um, or like, or vice versa, or then an executive would sit, um, someone senior who had a, you know, a lot of other things to do would sit in front of his office for a few days before getting a meeting uh, with him and just sit, yeah, sit for hours on end. He was also, I mean, leading up to the IPO, it's one of the most critical times in a company's uh, critical moment for a company. And I mean, you could just look at his private jet travel and, and the company bought him a private jet that he used a lot for his own personal use. There was like a month where we saw he was in Costa Rica. He went back and forth twice for surfing trips, the Dominican Republic. He had his whole staff come out, fly on, either take a three-hour drive over the summer as they were writing up their paperwork for the IPO in 2019. His whole staff was commuting back and forth to the Hamptons to meet with him and his wife. Um, And it's like a two and a half to three-hour drive or a helicopter ride. So just his lifestyle got more and more ridiculous and also seemed like he was spending less time focused on the company and also just kind of putting other people in a position to not do their best to just to accommodate him and his whims. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting part of it, that that he was hands-on and yet he wasn't hands-on. And that confusion seems to have created a lot of the problems for the company. Yeah, And he also, I mean, one of the things we heard is like, I mean, one of the, I guess, things that inspired people and worked really well early on and just is part of his personality is he's always dreaming up new ideas, new initiatives, and, um, you know, has been fantastic at executing some of them. But it got very, uh, he didn't have deputies. He didn't let his deputies have uh, really take charge. He was always sort of pitting people against each other. So he would have all these new ideas and um, 
you know, it was like, work on this big initiative, drop this, work on something else. It, it did just so confusion, waste, dysfunction at the company. Was there ever any time that anyone thought maybe they needed to sit him down and, and have that kind of come to Jesus moment? <laughs> well, either either Massa or, or even Jamie Dimon, who, you know, he used to refer to as his bank, his personal banker, <laughs> um, or, the, or the people at Benchmark. Was there anybody that, that ever thought maybe we need to try and do an intervention here? Uh, we heard that people would say things and talk about it. And we're getting increasingly frustrated in 2019. But I think the most ridiculous thing in the story is, yes, they did decide this. Yes, there were interventions. And they all came like a, within the week or so around when they had to call off the IPO because of so many different crazy um Things that Adam was doing. I mean, when you he- when you hear this, it's like, wow, really? <laughs> like, couldn't have. I mean, this whole year where we of 2019 before this IPO fell apart, you just hear of the crazy things he was doing. As I said, like even just uh, you know flying all over the world on surf vacations, and it was. And that year, we understand that he missed a ton of board meetings, and then it was you know basically almost too late by the time people were really willing to stand up to him, including um, Jamie Dimon was kind of part of this intervention benchmark. He was one of the top VCs, venture capital investors in Silicon Valley. Um, Other board members, they, yeah, they had this intervention before or right around when the IPO was called off and tried to got him to step down, but not really in a, in a true solid way before that. To what extent, I mean, and you, you and, and your co-author, you know, have, have been living with this for a long time, how clear is it how much Newman actually believed of all of this? How much was self-delusion? How much was a scam? Well, I mean, where do you come down on all of that? I think I would say it's something between, it, it's, I'm sort of in a camp where he, it was, uh, he believed it and it was self-delusion, but he lived. And I guess this is, this is fair to most entrepreneurs. I mean, you sort of, in order to create anything on a huge scale, there has to be some, uh, you know, like if you can't be totally focused on reality because you haven't created it. You have to be willing to dream so big and everyone's going to tell you it's impossible and to go for it anyway. So it was like, you know, Adam, every step of the way had done the impossible and would sort of sort of will the impossible into existence. Like he had barely raised money and he was talking about WeWork being, uh, you know, all over the country. He'd, and he had barely closed on his first uh, property in Manhattan. So it was there was something to even the people around him like, wow, 20 times before we doubted him. He always makes it happen. And so I think he really did believe it even, but then, you know, even as it started getting crazier and crazier and made no sense, I think he was delusional enough and maybe it just sort of broke more and more from reality or even like true possibility that it could work. But I think he did believe it every step of the way. I don't, I don't really think he thought it was a fraud and he was trying to trick people. What's the takeaway from this, do you think? What do we learn from this story? 
I, the, the really tricky thing about this um, is I think there are so many lessons to learn about um, capitalism, like some of the dysfunctions of it. And this, you know, this founders are not um, perfect beings. I mean, there's, there should be systems in place. Founders are going to make a lot of mistakes and there should be checks and balances in the system to sort of let these visionary leaders create something, but also not bring it down and not just take extract for themselves. I mean, thousands of jobs, Adam built this incredible company, yet he brought it, he was the catalyst of its downfall too. And he's left a billionaire and tons of people are out of jobs. Um, you know, essentially $10 billion has been sort of destroyed in investment. And um, so I think it's just, there need to be more checks and balances on these companies. The scary thing is um, we, just, we, we wrote this epilogue to our book and it seemed like as we were writing the epilogue post uh, after all this, it seemed like there was a bit of a wake up call and the story was so crazy that investors were, were becoming more discriminating, more wary and things like this wouldn't happen again. And then we rewrote our epilogue as it started happening more. Um, not necessarily on the scale of WeWork, but just a lot of, you know, we're seeing it in the world of SPACs, these uh, vehicles that are going public to go and acquire another company. Just a lot of risk taking that seems, uh, you know, dangerous and speculative. Um, and, and, and we kept on rewriting the epilogue as things got crazier. So I guess the scary thing is, I don't think the lessons have been learned. I think we're kind of still in the middle of this crazy time and we're going to maybe on a smaller scale, maybe not on the level of Adam Newman, but um, if you look around the market right now, you, you're seeing signs of, uh, you know, just some of this craziness in startup land. And finally, there is a sense that part of the reason this story is so fascinating and, and people can't seem to get enough of it, or a lot of people can't seem to get enough of it, is that it, it does reflect a particular moment in time, as we talked about earlier, but it's also a story that seems to me at least, and I want to get your thoughts on it, that doesn't, it, because the company never went public, that there really are no heroes and no villains here. There doesn't seem to be any heroes in this story. And, you know, none of what happened was arguably illegal. None of the laws were seemed to have been broken. There, there really are no villains in this story. Everybody that, that invested, most of the people that read it, knew were, were, you know, big boys. They knew what they were doing. Um, talk about that. Yeah, it's, it is very, it is interesting all around. And I agree with you on it. I mean, the closest thing to a villain is clearly um, Adam Newman. But what I think we tried to do in the story is, as we said before, is like we really felt like there was a collective, um, like non-action. As I said, like, you know, people stood up to him as the IP, as everything fell apart. So it was like, the problem came from so many different people of sort of not in each step of the way, the people who should have been doing what they were doing didn't. So it's not like you could, you could paint, you can point to even one person. Um, you can't point to Adam. I mean, had the board of directors done what they were supposed to do, this would not have happened in the same way. Had the underwriters pushed back against some of the insanity as they were going public. Um, like a dereliction of duty on so many different fronts. So I think that does speak to what you're saying. 
no heroes, no villains. No one came in. It wasn't a single whistleblower because there wasn't anything really to blow a whistle on. It wasn't like things were hidden. They were just, he was sort of doing most of this in plain sight. It was like $40 billion of cotton candy. It was just a fantasy. (laughs) Yeah, a mirage. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maureen Farrell, the book is The Cult of We. We work, Adam Newman, and the great startup delusion. Maureen, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you.